Saying low, Apple Music. We're celebrating a loose anniversary, but for good reason. We're bringing this music into a much, much broader, much more expansive and beautiful place with a brand new spatial mix. For those people that don't know what spatial audio is because you're listening to this podcast, then go to Apple Music, and when you find the icon that says Dolby Atmos on it, press play, and you'll be experiencing something brand new in the world of sound. I'll leave it there. It's for you to go and experiment with, but needless to say, it's an amazing experience, and all of that to say, we are celebrating an album that now has arrived in Apple Music in a spatial environment which is the environment which according to the creators that made it and you'll hear this over the course of this conversation it was always designed to go this far it's just the technology didn't allow it at the time we're talking about air two individuals who came out of a heady and exciting time for french dance music and created the after party experience if you were going to the club and you were listening to peak level french touch house music by the time you got home with a core group of friends and decided to keep the mood and the music going albeit in a slightly tasteful manner then Air's Moon Safari was your selection of choice. That album was start to finish an incredible and at times daunting debut album due to the level of success and attention that it received. Following on from that unexpected success, Air returned into the studio and decided to do something far more ambitious, leaning away from their natural, instinctive, radio-ready pop anthems and moving into a far more progressive space. The result became 10,000 Hertz Legend, which upon release was met with mixed reviews and amongst fans of that immediate first album, interesting reactions, maybe even somewhat confused. But here's the thing about albums like that. Time is kind to albums like that. Some of your favorite albums are albums like that, which is why now we celebrate 10,000 Hertz legend with the benefit of time and some perspective. Music has caught up to it. We've all caught up to it. And now it's considered by many to be one of, if not Air's most significant albums. Now in Spatial Audio, listen to that as an accompaniment to this conversation. Please enjoy this podcast interview right here on the interview series with Air. One of my favorite pieces of music that you've ever made, actually, this, this song I'm listening to right now, which features on your second album, well, third album if you include Virgin Suicides, of course, 10,000 Hertz Legend, 20 years old this year, and now coming in spatial audio, which is all the reasons why we're connecting with you. I jumped at the chance. So first things first, how are you? How is life? I'm very well. I remember the nights we did, we did that track. It was a, I said it, it's going to be a great track. I remember that, that night very precisely. This to me was always a really central piece of music to the overall, I felt, because it showed like the growth, a really, really big jump of growth from Moon Safari right through to this, to this record. But it summed up a lot of what made people love your music in the first place. JB, what are your thoughts about, about Radiana making this song? I think this song is a really uh, complicated song because there are three songs in it, three pieces of music that we put together. It's like an adventure. It's like a panoramic side of music, you know. We wanted to experiment uh, stereo and uh, orchestras and uh, harmonies and having different kind of atmosphere in uh, one track. So yeah, it's like it's a big change from Safari. It's much more complete and uh, composed. I think we actually got to know you properly on this album. In a strange way, I feel like the first album was a little bit of a, a, a false first impression because I think people thought that you were one way and that, you know, you really set out your roadmap on your second record. Nicolas, was it as simple as that? Did you talk to each other and, or did you kind of come to an, an understanding 
that you wanted to make a big step forward like that? I think we were pretty damaged in our head because we had the big success of Moon Safari and it's, it was our first album. And so it was like a big shock for us. And we had this huge uh, promotion campaign. And then uh, we knew if, if, if we would do a second sense, Moon Safari, uh, we will not be there um, for very long because in one way, that's what people wanted. But if you do that, people don't like it really. So it was like a lose-lose, you know? So, and also we were, we were not, an, I don't think, uh, yeah, we were kind of, uh, I had at the time I had a lot of anxiety. I remember when I was doing the second album, there's always the pressure of making a second record. That's why we cheated a little bit with, when we did uh, Virgin Suicide because it was kind of the second time we were recording stuff after Moon Safari. So we were, we had like um, an unofficial an, an second album, which was uh, Virgin Suicide. But then for 10,000 Hertz, I was, uh, I was very, I don't know. I, I, I didn't have a clear idea. The only idea that I had is that I didn't want to do Moon Safari one, one more time. I wondered about Virgin Suicides and what role that played. You've sort of touched on that a little bit. The idea of of being able to follow up success without it being the of you know a clear and official follow up, and and also being able to work within a a different narrative to have an actual film script that you can kind of start to to think about that takes it away from having to build another world entirely from air must have made a big difference for you. Yes, but Virgin Suicide was really inspired by the movie, as Nicolas said. We were a little bit. Uh, tired from uh, the Moon Safari uh, promotion and uh, we, ha- we had read in the interviews that people would call our music sometimes a little bit like too loungy or too nice or too easy listening. And uh, with this movie and this uh, new sound that we wanted to produce, we wanted to be like really dark and really more rock and more aggressive. And we wanted to experiment like really deeply into darkness, you know, uh, some kind of new sounds. And uh, I think that we followed this path on 10,000 Earth Legend by uh, making music with more drums and more orchestras. You made a really strong point before, which I think a lot of artists should should, should adhere to, which is try not to compromise on, with yourself when you're creating something that's special. But there's two of you. JB, how have you learned to compromise with each other in order to get the best result? Uh, I don't think that compromise is the right world. Uh, you know, it's um, when you do music, you know, you just want to go further and further. And so you try things. And when the other one has some ideas, you try them. Because you know that at the end, you will choose the right pattern and the, and the right sound and the right melody. So it's just like working, actually. When uh, we worked in the studio and when I work in, also my music, I just listen to any kind of idea and I just try it, you know, and try and try again until the result is uh, something like a bug, like something unexpected, something bigger than than myself, you know. And uh, this is the magic of music, the possibility of like uh, pushing up your ideas so far and incorporating like ideas from anybody and just try to make something like unique and powerful. I mean, the idea of compromising, I don't understand what it is because it's impossible to release a music that you don't like. Yeah. I, I don't, I'd like to be proud of anything I do. It requires persistence to your point. And you talked a little bit about the song we were listening to at the beginning, uh, Radion, which you said was, was complicated to put together three different songs. And it takes, real, it takes real focus to do that. But also great things come from letting go and from just kind of trying to trust the process. And I wonder, 
you know, on an album like 10,000 Hertz Legend, what the balance, looking back on it now, what, Nicholas, what the balance was between perseverance and letting go to get the end result? How much of it took work and how much of it was spiritual? The secret is innocence. Like when you're in the studio and you don't, uh, you live in a fantasy world and you you don't think of uh, record companies, radios or audience or carrier. You have to, each song, you have to make it like it was your your first song or if it's like exactly what you feel that morning when you wake up, you know. And if you try to forget all these things, that's when you make great music, I think. You really have to... It's like also because we were in France where our biggest success was in England or um, in America. And the fact to be in France, we were kind of a little isolated world. Like France is more well-known for restaurants or fashion, you know. But uh, for music, it was a new world. Like there was, we were one of the first bands to have success abroad, you know. So we were fresh all the time because we we were in Paris and uh, we were not in London, you know, with all the press and the medias and stuff like that. So the fact, that we were in, in this kind of bubble. We made a completely free music that would have not been possible if we would have been in Los Angeles or in London, you know, where it's the heart of the music business, you know. We were isolated from all that world. You make a good point, but to my memory, at least 20 years ago, yes, you were one of the first French artists in the modern era to have that level of success, but you weren't alone. You were sharing space with you know, Daft Punk, uh, with yeah. Uber and the late great Philippe Zadar and Cassius. There were peers around you, you know, um, Busy P, who were continuing to do great, great art as well. Yeah, there was a real peer competition. And that's why it was, it was great. Like Daft Punk, they gave us a lot of encouragement and we learned a lot from them. And uh, they gave us a lot of good advices. And they were the first to show the way, you know, because the album was released one year before Moon Safari. And uh, yeah. it was, uh, they spray uh, hope for all the... F- French musicians in Paris. Paris was a very exciting place for club music. But us, as you said earlier, we didn't we didn't do that type of music. Like Moon Safari was not clubbing, was not nothing to do with house. Ah, uh, but it was. But it was in my opinion, it was. And I'll tell you why I think that was because at the end of the night, most of the time you don't want to go home. You're too high yeah. on adrenaline or other things. And you don't, you don't want to go to sleep. It's not like you leave a night. If you had a great night and Daft Punk had been DJing and you've just danced your ass off, you're not just going to be like, oh, I'm tired. No one ever yawns leaving a nightclub unless it's really late. So it's like, where do you go and what do you do? And I think what, what people really identified with in Moon Safari was that you were the soundtrack after the club. It was the other side of the same coin and the, the coin was your life, you know? Yeah, very true. You talked about Daft Punk um, giving you advice and I want to be a little more granular with that because I think I love sharing advice through conversation to people and I love talking historically about that. JB or Nicolas, you know, what was one piece of advice when you were about to release Moon Safari or around that time when things were really happening that Daft Punk or in fact any of your peers gave you that really helped steady your journey? The advice comes earlier before we recorded Moon Safari when we started to give us the trust to go on. Yeah, and they just, like, they were extreme. I mean, they said to us that we had to be, like, to go uh, at the end of what we wanted to, to do, with, especially with record companies. We, we should, like, trust them and uh, rely on them because they are really powerful and uh, we shouldn't be, like, uh, scared of them, you know, like, uh, trying to really work close uh we closely with them because they have some power and they can have also like um, some interesting artistic ideas and so it was like um because 
you know, at the beginning, we we were a bit scared of uh, being produced by by Virgin or by a, a major company. It was like kind of scary, but they they were like so confident in themselves, and they they were like uh, strong. And I think that they gave us like some strong some strongness. Use the system and don't let the system use you, right? If you have confidence in your vision, use the tools that are in, in front of you to build your world, right? I get that. And I think it's great advice, especially at that time, to your point, anxiety around the major label system was very high. Turn of the millennium, no one knew who was, what was wagon what, the tail or the dog. And yet it brings me back to something that you said at the beginning, Nicolas, which was at the end of Moon Safari, you were suffering from post-success trauma. <laughs> you had anxiety based on expectation. And so in many respects, that warning, whilst, whilst you know, wise, also led you to a place that brought on that anxiety anyway, didn't it? The idea of being in that system, being in that promotional cycle. It was very violent for me, especially because um, it was my first album. I never made any concert. I never made... Um, I never had a, it, suddenly you do a song and suddenly it's, you know, it's not like we tried, it's the first, the first album, you know, and, and also I, I like to be in a recording studio and suddenly you have to do photograph, you have to go to do promo on TV. And uh, mm. it was, a uh, for me, it was a trauma because I was not prepared for that. I was not ready for that. My only ambition was to make great records. I never understood all the sides that would go with it. When it came time to recording your second album, uh, JB, what, what memories do you have of the, of the start of that process? How did the journey to make 10,000 Hertz Legend begin? It was great because, first of all, we traveled a lot in America. We traveled in, in Los Angeles to record some strings and some orchestras, so it was kind of new. We went into the Capitol Recording Studio in LA, and it was so amazing to see like all these uh, technical things these machines these mic microphones and these amazing musicians uh, playing with us it's really funny because uh, when we did our first album Moon um, Safari we didn't have like so much budget to make it but for 10,000 Earth Legend the funny thing is that we had like a much more budget and so the means to record like what we want to do were very very big at at this point, and so it was like we had like uh, some so much money to record like uh, strings, like a full orchestra string ensemble, and uh, a choir, and um, some flutes, and some whatever. It was like a fantasy, you know. It was uh, it was so great. We spent a week in LA doing recording what JB was was saying, and um, it was true. It was like a real fantasy, and we really because we 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 spent six months in Paris recording the album. And then um, when we went in LA to finish it, to do all the things we couldn't do by, by ourselves, you know, like um, orchestras, choirs, classical instruments. And uh, I knew we were in a window where I wonder uh, when would be the next time that the record company will, will give us so much money to do such bizarre music, you know. So I say, when I understood that, I said to myself, we had to be the more extreme as possible because we will never have a second chance to record that kind of music with that kind of budget, you know, because this, this was like, basically we had the money that um, the most commercial artist had. And so we decided to do something not commercial to, 
because uh, it was it, it was a unique chance to do that, you know, because uh, they will never do that mistake twice, you know, the record companies. And so that's why the album is so weird. You're describing a punk rock record. That's what you're describing. You're describing, a, this is your, your punk record. <laughs> Maybe. But uh, I remember, I remember it was the, the attitude at the time, like, uh, let's make the weirdest music with the biggest uh, budget. When the album came out, you got your wish. You know, there were people who got it and there were people who didn't. And I remember there being a certain selection, you know, part of your audience and part of the, the music critique society who were scratching their heads. And no one came out and said it was awful. They were just like, I don't, I don't know what the central core of this record is. Is it Radian? Is it Radio Number One? Is it like, what is it? Do you know what I mean? When you started sort of seeing the reaction to the record, did you feel disappointment or did you feel like that's what we were trying to achieve? And I'm glad that we did. Yeah, uh, both. I was, uh, as I said earlier, I was very innocent. So I, I was thinking this kind of weird music will have a lot of success because I don't, uh, I, I'm an innocent person. I think my dreams become a reality all the time, you know. And then when it was mastered, we went to Virgin headquarters in London and uh, we were in a big reunion room and there was all the, um, the Virgin executives and um, we started to play the album and um, song after song, people were leaving the room. <laughs> and so we understood that that would be kind of a misunderstanding. Wait, did you say they were leaving the room? Yeah. yeah. Cannot believe that. So, yeah. Who leaves a room during an album? <laughs> But then, you know, like uh, a couple of years later, we gave them Toki Woki, which was a massive success. So we were even at the end. Yeah, but f- them. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but it's like you left the room on the last one. I have the hit record. Like, oh, we're all going to stick around for this one. Like, oh, okay, nice one. Thanks, Mike from Marketing. <laughs> Appreciate that. You know what, though? To bring it back to this album, they were wrong. This is Paul's Boutique. This is that album that, that afforded you a future, really. You said it at the beginning, didn't you? That if you'd gone ahead and tried to replicate Moon Safari, you would never have pleased everybody and it would have cut you off at the ankles. This actually gave you a chance to grow and the album found its audience over time. JB, when did you start to feel? In fact, maybe you felt it straight away. I don't know. But when did you start to notice, I should say, that the album was actually starting to find its audience over a longer period of time than the first album had? I never felt that. I think that uh, I never said to myself that 10,000 Earth Legend was uh, a cult album. I, I don't know. I think that, uh, as you said, you know, it was, uh, it was a mes- misunderstanding at the beginning when it came out. Everyone was expecting like some big commercial singles and, uh, and the album was like down-tempo and psychedelic and crazy and experimental. And so there, there was a misunderstanding, but at the end of the day, you know, it's um, a very interesting piece of music and uh, it was necessary to shock people, really, because nothing is, is worse than, uh, like, boring people, you know. And so we wanted to to send, like, this shock wave to the audience and it was necessary. But, you know, deep down in myself, I knew that what we have had done was, like, futuristic it was like new it was a, a new kind of uh, producing the music because there were some uh, computer effects there were like some uh, real live uh, interpretation mixed with like crazy scenes and like it was like really a, a new way i think to produce music and so uh, i knew that it was like um 
that one day this album like would find its place in the history of music. I think, I think it's, it be, it's becoming simply a cult album, especially people that love rock music. They like this album because you have like a, a piece of um, rock attitude in it. What were the reference points, if any, when you were making this record? And it doesn't have to be anything as obvious as music, but were there images? Was there a mood board per se that allowed you to stay on course? Because it's a broad album. No, I remember that was uh, the idea was to try new uh, equipment uh, because um, for each album we changed completely uh, the equipment. We never used the same instruments or synthesizers. During the Moon Safari promotion, we were in Los Angeles and we bought a lot of old uh, American brands we couldn't find in Europe, like Moog, Lean Drum Machines. And suddenly we had access in, L- in LA with all the American famous brands. So we bought a lot of gear. We bought a drum set, I remember, in, uh, in Los Angeles, and we bought some pedals, and then we went back in Paris. So we had all this American equipment, and then we bought all the new gadgets that were released in the, in the music stores in France, like the new little gadgets, like um, electronic gadgets, like pedals and uh, little samplers, little drum machines. It was before like, the computer era, really. It was very organic. And so we mixed the huge tradition of American sounds, American recordings in terms of equipment with the, with the new technologic um, gadgets that you can find in, uh, for cheap in uh, music stores. And so the idea was to have this new energy from a new equipment. I remember we were in Paris recording and then um, Beck uh, came in, um, in Paris to do some promotion and to do some live shows on TV. And then um, we were friends with him and his band. And so some of these musicians stayed uh, in Paris and we have recorded with them in our little studio. And also Brian Redzel, uh, the drummer, he was, uh, he was supervising a movie in, in Paris. And so he was there too. And so we were like a group of uh, Parisian LA uh, friends stuck together with tons of equipment. But we recorded the album ourselves without that producer or something, which was just the energy of musicians and um, exchanging ideas and testing some new equipment, you know. Can you tell us a story about The Vagabond? Because to me, what I love about that, especially at the time, was that I had fallen in love with the album Mutations, like many other people who re- recognized mm-hmm. that, you know, Beck had found a... He'd finally sort of cracked what he'd, been, what he'd been dancing around on One Foot in the Grave and with Feather in Your Cap and songs like that. And he'd been able with Nigel Godrich to expand... And he found this beautiful other side of him that we now know and love across multiple albums. But that was one of the first times that he'd shown up outside that record and really done something lush and beautiful with that incredible voice of his. And I, I, I wasn't there and you were. What was that, what was that session like? Oh, it was uh, about improvising on the song because we had the, the music before. And you know, Beck was like uh, in fire. I remember in the studio and he was... It was really interesting to see how he would uh, compose a song, especially how he would invent the lyrics. It was based on improvisation. Also, he wanted to experiment things with like guitars and uh, with harmonica. And, uh, you know, it was just about like uh, having fun and being crazy. But uh, he had like this idea of the vagabond. And I think that uh, as like any uh, writer, he has like a carnet with like a lot of lyrics and he used like some sentences and he, he adapted to the song when it's uh, the time to, to record. So uh, it, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I remember at the end, there is a, he's laughing. Yeah. And someone like put out a joke and I think that he, he laughed and he had, a, he had a really, really strange laugh. And we, we loved his laugh because it was like, 
getting it was like so funny to you know to listen to Beck uh, laughing like that because nobody did before. <laughs> That's true. Uh, he has a sort of like um, charismatic aura, but like a little bit serious, and uh, so it was changing absolutely his personality. When I heard that as well, I felt the same way. I was like, "What was that sound? What 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 was that?" Because <laughs> he was the straight faced king back then. He would just straight face his way through every joke possible, mainly interviews. I know because I tried and he was tough. <laughs> For the first few years, mm. he was really tough. It was a family recording, you know, because we, we were with friends really. And, and the funny thing is that 20 years later, we still are all together friends, you know. I didn't know really American people. And now I can count on, this, uh, on these people. Like when I go in LA, I have pleasure to see them and they're always there and uh, we, they, we, we have this long relationship and it's very rewarding for me to know it was not only professional, it was more, uh, we have some affinities, you know, we were close to each other for a reason that's still there 20 years later, you know. There are some themes that, that flow throughout the record if you spend time listening to it and the anxiety you talk about going into recording it, Nicolas, comes out in certain songs. Like I, and, I, and this is just my interpretation. I hear in People in the City, this idea of of movement and community and tactility mm. and and you know it's it's all right in front of you but it's it, it's all a bit of a it's all a bit of a grid it's all a little bit of a math you know and, and I sort of wonder how you were you were sort of trying to get your themes and messages lyrically across on this record because you use your words sparingly on your records. You know, I think people in the city it's uh you know when you you are out of your bed or when you are like uh, out of something completely different. Like when you come from your family world and suddenly you see like this crazy life in the city. And, uh, in a way, uh, you, you feel that stupid. I mean, you, feel, <laughs> you feel deeply in yourself that, uh, there is no, no sense of like running every day like that and, uh, having like a, a very intense, crazy job. It doesn't make any sense actually. And, uh, when you're a musician, you can feel that because you are out of this uh, crazy working life. It's a little bit pretentious to say that because I know that uh, uh, you have to work to make money and uh, it's not easy for everyone. But uh, it was like, also it was a sort of fear that we had when we were um, studying, you know, because we had, at one point, we knew that we had to work one day and to have a bus and to and be in the city and run like crazy and obey obey to the orders. And uh, so people in the city represent that, this kind of uh, chance to be a musician and to have uh, escaped from this uh, crazy urban world. Can we talk a little bit about the recording of Lucky and Unhappy, which is another one of my favorites on the record and what memories you have of that? I remember when um, I was recording, uh, uh, when I wanted to mix this song, I asked uh, Tony Hoffer who was mixing the record, I say uh, for the sound of the bass that starts the song, I say, I would like the effect that with a little uh, spike, we do a hole in the speaker, you know? And uh, so how can you do that? And so that was uh, this kind of, uh, that's my most memory I had that I wanted to have like this little tiny, tiny, tiny hole in the speaker, which creates a little vibrations. And I was looking for that vibrations a lot. That was the first time when we tried to uh, synchronize um, because there's this first sentence on electronic performer. We are the synchronizers because we were trying to synchronize um, machines and uh, with, with computers or 
And then the, for this song, we, we have the kick drum was synchronized with the Korg MS-20. And that's, that's the, the first time we did that on a recording. And it was, uh, it was magic. I discovered that. It, I thought it was... I really liked the, this. Uh, and then we did that many times after that. But I think it was the first time on an air recording that we were using this process. 10,000 Hertz Legend is the name of the album. 20 years on, it, it remains a benchmark audio recording um, and, and as has been well documented in this conversation with our guests Air, the creators, the synchronizers. Uh, this, was a, this was an opportunity to, to combine the future which became the norm with what was the future and the norm at the time. And it is wow. a perfect balance of those two things. And now we get to listen to it in a new way. You've been listening to it with that stereo mix for 20 years. How excited were you to be able to move into a spatial environment with an album that I feel was really trying to create space at the time? I think that uh, when I've listened to uh, the, the Crazy Atmos version, I said to myself that uh, it was what we wanted to do at the beginning. We wanted to have this kind of sound, this spacey sound, and 10,000 Earth Legend has been recorded for that in a way, in our mind, in the mix, we wanted to listen to this kind of uh, space everywhere. But we couldn't because it was only stereo. But now with uh, the new technology, you know, suddenly I think that uh, 10,000 Hertz can really, really exist as it has been like uh, invented at the beginning. I think that when you're a musician, you know, you have a picture in your mind. You have like a sort of a picture of the sound in your mind, actually. And um, in Tetan and Earth Legend, when you listen to carefully, there, is, there are different kind of layers, you know. I think that uh, a good sound is different kind of uh, texture on layers of sounds. And in Tetan Earth, you have like the acoustic layer, which is like all the orchestra takes, you know, in the Capitol Recording Studios. So it's like a big, big, bassy uh, recording. and on it, you have like all the electronics with uh, the delays and the effects turning uh, around them. And um, this this turn, this kind of like uh, stereo or like, uh, you know, spacey movement into your head, it's only possible to do that on the Atmos system. So it was like so creative to do that with this uh, new technology. And the good thing is, like, also, like, Bruce King, the engineer, who was there at the, at this time, you know, when we recorded the, the songs, he was there and uh, he participated to the, to the mix. And so he, for him, it was like a very, uh, unique, uh, important experience to renew with this, uh, this album. And he knew all the tracks and he, he knew how to, um, how it has been done and what we had in mind this time. How did it feel when you listen back, Nicolas, to the mixes and spatial and Atmos for the first time? So I'm actually, I was never listening to the album after it was done. When I uh, sat in the studio and I recording the Atmos uh, mix, and as JB said, I, I said to myself, it took 20 years to finish this album. It's like it's finally, it's done, you know, it's accomplished and um, that was a, such a good moment because I said, that's it, that's done. I can close the chapter now because uh, this is what we wanted to hear when we were creating this music in our mind, you know. So it was a good, uh, it was like a gift for me. It was like a reward, a reward experience to reward me for having waited 20 years, you know. 
Have you enjoyed um, reflecting upon this album at, at 20 years? I always wonder that with artists who are continuing to move forward. You're both in, in, in recording studios separately right now. You, you, you know, music remains your passion and focus and nothing stops at 10,000 hertz legend. You've continued on and on. But I wonder when it's time to reflect on things like this and celebrate for lots of reasons, whether, whether or not you've enjoyed that experience. When you've done some music and when you've done some album, you don't listen to the music. You just, uh, like in your heart, you know, you see all the pictures of this time. You, because like music has this possibility to capture the time, to capture the emotion at, at a special time in your life. And so that's what it does to me when I listen to uh, the albums or the 10,000 Earth Legend music. I don't listen to the music. I just see pictures of this time, like uh, me in the studio and like me in my, with my family or, you know, the environment of, uh, of the music. Because I think that it's, it's just like a sort of, um, like a perfume, like a, you know, like a smell, you know, it, it brings you back to uh, your life at this time. And so it's a bigger experience than, than a musical experience. So uh, that's why I don't listen to so much uh, the album because it's not really music for me. It's just like, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of work and it's a little bit of like uh, past also. Well, I've really enjoyed being able to talk to you about it. Um, I never got a chance at the time, but in many respects, as you find your way to complete the record through Spatial, uh, I get a chance to, to, to get some thoughts 20 years later as well. So I've really enjoyed it. And um and I'm looking forward to the next time, whenever that may be, and for whatever reason. And in the meantime, thank you so much. Merci beaucoup. Thank you. Talking 10,000 Hertz legend with the two people who made it air, who now bring that record to life in spatial audio with Dolby Atmos. Go check that out on Apple Music. In fact, if you listen to this conversation, that's the next natural step. But before you do, make sure you add a comment or a rating. Thanks again for checking us out on the interview series. 